middle of talking about just the whole idea of, first of all, abstaining from sexual immorality. And then I took taking some time to talk about some of the things that girls ought to think about when it comes to guys and their attitude and some of what they're thinking and the whole idea of, you know, ways girls try to attract guys' attention that they may not even realize how a lot of the guys they attract in certain ways are thinking things about them that they wouldn't want them to think. I remember we talked, I, I can't remember how far I went in this class, I didn't go as far as with the other classes. We talked some about even like dating and that sort of thing, what you do on dates. No. I want to talk about that a second because obviously some of you will uh, you know, get to be 35 one day and my parents will allow you to date, so. Uh, um, you know, there is a principle. You can do with this what you want to, but I think this is a valid principle. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul told Timothy to treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. It seems to me like that's a pretty good model of girl-guy relationships. That when you are with your sister, as a guy, there are certain things you wouldn't do because it would be gross. You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I use this with guys all the time. I'll mention their sister, I'll mention their grandma. You have nothing for your grandma if you're a guy. You know, even though you have friendship and even affection, that's a pure kind of affection. So, can you imagine a guy and his sister maybe walking along holding hands? I say, yeah. Now, there are some guys and some sisters who might not choose to do that, but you wouldn't look at that and think, ooh, what are they thinking? No, you probably wouldn't do that. You know, can you imagine a guy maybe, um, you know, putting his arm around his sister's shoulders? Yeah, I think you could. Uh, I don't think you'd, you'd immediately think, whoa. But... Uh, what if you saw uh, uh, a guy French kissing his sister? That's real. <laughs> now, isn't that interesting? We all had the same reaction. That's gross. Why? Well, we see the difference. Because, yeah, exactly. We see the difference. You can see that, you know, holding somebody's hand or putting your arm around their shoulders or whatever can just be an expression of friendship, of innocent affection. You know, there are various things like that that you can do with your grandma, you can do with your sister, that, that you wouldn't even think anything bad about at all. But there are certain things that clearly are more different. I mean, they're the kind of things that husbands and wives do. And if you did it with your sister, it'd be like, why would you why would you be thinking those kind of things about your sister? You know, that would be that would be certainly inappropriate and gross. And uh, so I think that's where you draw the line. Now here's the problem. That's quite alright. I feel the same way. I have really wondered about, are they just as strong on the other opposite side of the room, Okay, you're okay. It's right over What do we think? What if we went to the other side of the pavilion? Would we still have as many? I think it would be the same. 
There's, so there's, there's a wasp's nest, like, right over there. And they're there. They're everywhere. Let's just stay here. So, yeah. We could. There's one by the Would it be any good to go to the cafeteria? Yeah. Would that be better or worse? Yeah, it's very neat. It's very warm. It's warm. Yeah, can we just. Oh my gosh, I'm going to keep going. Is it in the shade? Let's just keep going. Yeah, we want to stay in the shade. What do you think? Do you want to stay? Stay here. I'll rough and tough it. Well, I mean, all of us are going to have to be affected by the bees a little bit, so, you know, do whatever you need to, and we'll try to keep going. Uh, yeah, and it may just, I don't know, we may get so many of these right now, I don't know if we can do this. <laughs> uh, that's a dirt number, actually. Okay, alright. So some of them are innocent. But, uh, but you get a guy, and, you know, you really like him. He really likes you. And you would like him to show you affection, and friendship, and closeness. Because that makes you feel comforted. It makes you feel like he likes you and he cares about you. Mm -hmm. But here's where I, what I see in guys. Yeah, if he's holding your hand maybe or, you know, something like that, it may very well be that he really is showing that he cares about you, that he wants you, that he, he, he likes friendship with you. But when he crosses the line, without making a commitment of marriage to you. He crosses the line into stuff that you couldn't imagine him doing with his sister. You know what's going on in his head? He's enjoying that. He's enjoying taking advantage of your body for his fun without doing what God says you need to do to have the right over each other's body, to give each other, to give yourself to each other. And so, <laughs> I really need to match you. It's just like five. Are they, are they everywhere? Yes. Yeah, there's one by your feet. It, it went away. So, so in that situation, what you see is, you know, he's really taking advantage of you. Now, there are a lot of girls that would say, well, but I don't want to lose him. And there may be guys that if they don't get what they want out of your body, they're going to they're gonna leave. Because what, what they're in it for is their feeling, their excitement, their fun, their entertainment. But if a guy really respects you and really cares about you and not about the fun he can get off of your body, then he's going to be willing to wait until God says it's okay in marriage to enjoy all of the pleasures associated with the husband-wife relationship. Because guys, you know, for a girl, some of that may still feel like affection and friendship. I don't know many guys who would do those sorts of things and not get a, a sensual enjoyment out of that. You know, there's a reason why they like that and they want that is because it's really fun for them. So, I brought up a whole lot of stuff. I'm willing to talk or listen or have you say whatever you want to about all that. I'm trying to present sort of what I see from talking to a lot of guys and from being a guy. You know, what I see is kind of where guys are at and what kind of things they think. Um, not to like 
I kind of really appreciate it that you like tell us because you know like we're girls and you know we might think well he thinks this and you know they're guys you know God's made them a special way and he's made us you know a special girl way <laughs> so we aren't really in guys minds and we don't know how to think so I really appreciate you know that you caring about us enough to um, remind us that they are young men and um, they aren't really that mature and uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> So, I just want to say thanks, because that's always helpful. It's not just young men. <laughs> Unfortunately, true. watch it even as you get older and even now. I don't care what age the man is. When a guy, I mean, if a guy starts, any guy, starts showing what you would consider sort of a weird interest in you, starts being affectionate in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, or, I don't know, just seems like he's always wanting to be with you, always looking at you, wanting to do special things with you. I mean, married guys do that, even with teenage girls sometimes. And sometimes even Christian married guys. I'm not trying to make you skeptical of everybody, but it's wise to, to be a little bit reserved when you see somebody doing something that seems beyond what's natural. I wouldn't necessarily judge somebody immediately, but when you feel like, hey, this doesn't feel real good to me, then just back away a little bit. You know, maybe it's okay, maybe it's innocent, but again, I talk to, I talk to older guys, too, and I know some of them that struggle with seeing young women, and, you know, they struggle with their behavior and their thoughts toward them. I'm not saying every man, uh, but but I think it's wise to just be thoughtful about that. Okay, other thoughts, good. Okay. Um, it is like really important that we don't we're not just careful around young men. That um, like my dad has like talked to me about this a lot, and um, it's not like there's an age that men reach where they're stuff just gets turned off. It's, right. it's always there and we can always be a hindrance to them. So, I mean, even if we're like going to be in a room full of men our dad's age, we still have to be careful. I agree. And for some guys, it's more than just the feeling, too. It gets to be a pride feeling like, you know, he's somebody that these girls really like is something that sometimes guys really struggle with. So just being wise, being uh, careful and discreet, just being um, a little bit reserved in terms of how you present yourself, in terms of the kinds of conversations you would have. You can be friendly, but there are certain kinds of conversations that aren't very appropriate you and any kind of a man together, unless he's your father or something like that. Yeah. Well, I just think that nowadays, um, everyone, not just, well, I guess it pertains to the city because the world doesn't really care, but Christian girls and guys have just gotten what they think is right totally mixed up. Because in the world, you know, we've let a lot of things slip, you know, and go, and you know, with movies we watch, you know, we've gotten a lot more lax about that. And, yeah, you know, if you watch a movie that has stuff in it, you're not going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go out and do that. But it 
plays with your mind a little bit, and it makes you think that some things might be right, even though they're not. And it's just that we need to make sure that we know what God says about it and where we do have to draw a line. And we have to keep that line because, um, you know, you can't just keep pushing it farther and farther back. And also, um, a long time ago, I think it was Tommy Peeler. No, it wasn't Tommy Peeler. But somebody gave a, um, a lesson on drawing narrative about it. And I didn't, it was at the lectures this year. Um, and Dixon brought it back and we listened to it at the study. And um, it made a really good point that, you know, we have lines that we draw and we see how close we can get to that line. You know, we're like, oh, we're still pure if we're here. But it's not about how close you can get. It's about how pure you can be. So, in a way, the reason why God doesn't have specific lines drawn is because he doesn't want you to see how close you can get to sin without sinning, you know? He wants you to be as pure as you can be and keep that mindset. And I think that a lot of times we often all forget that. And we think, you know, oh, well, I don't want to cross this line. But we can do anything you want to up until then, just so long as we don't do this, you know? And that hearing that lesson really helped me a lot because, you know, I felt like that too. I was like, you know, I'm not crossing the line. It's okay. But it really made me think, you know, how pure am I really? Even though I have a line, I'm still getting closer and closer to sin. And that makes it harder and harder to pull away from the line when you get there. And how pure do you want to be for your future husband? I realize some of you violated a lot of these things already probably. I don't know your personal lives. But, but, you know, think about, you're going to marry somebody. You don't really know who it is. You may think you do, but, I mean, until you get married, you don't know for sure. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen, even when people are engaged. Um, but one of these days, you'll probably marry some guy. Would you like to be a girl that has kissed, and I mean in the non-sisterly, brotherly way, who's kissed a bunch of guys, who's had a bunch of guys all over you, who's gone a long ways with a lot of guys, would that be what your ideal would be for yourself when you marry some guy? Or would you really like for him to be the first one to have taken liberties with your body and for you to give each other, give yourselves to each other? I mean, wouldn't it be cool? I realize many of you aren't in a position where you could ever do this again. But, but you, could li- you can limit it from here on out. But wouldn't it be cool if you could actually say, hey, <laughs> the only guy that's ever touched me like this, the only guy that's ever, that, that we've ever had this kind of a physical sort of relationship, it's, it's my, my husband after we got married. I mean, that would be really, that would give you a great sense of you're giving something really precious to him. Also, um, I think a lot of times as girls, you know, we want, like, the perfect husband and everything. And we're like, I want a guy that hasn't been like that. But the guy, in a way, is just the same. We can't hold higher standards for guys and be like, I don't want a guy that goes around with a whole lot of girls, you know, and does a lot of things with them. We have to be the exact same way because there are good Christian men out there that are trying to do the right thing. And they're not going to want us, even though we may want them, because uh, we were doing the exact thing that we didn't want them to do. Absolutely. I mean, it's a comfort to me. You know, I go to Brazil and I'm gone for two to four or five weeks at a time. And the fact that I know that not even with me before we got married did Sandra do anything that wouldn't have been appropriate between brothers and sisters. 
that makes me think, if she wouldn't have even done that with me before we got married, even when we were engaged, say, I really don't have much doubt that she's pure while I'm gone. But now, if, if that wasn't the case, it would be harder to trust each other. You'd have more doubts. Well, I know, you know, some people are like, they'd have to think, well, I know that at least at one point she was capable of doing a bunch of stuff that she shouldn't have, and she'd know that about you. And so, you know, being really pure helps you a whole lot after you get married. <laughs> because you have a lot more trust in each other. Good comments. Other comments and thoughts here? Anybody want to put in questions? Um, I was just going to say that the lecture that Maggie was talking about was by Edwin Crozier. Right. And it was definitely one of the best lessons I've ever heard. And I would really say that if you can, you should listen to it. It's really good. It was good. All right. Yes. One point that he made was that um, like you're talking about the line and stuff, and the one thing that he said that really stuck in my mind was that um, too many people are concerned about where to draw the line, and really we should not even draw the line in the first place, and because we should be so far away from wherever we are going to draw it, that it really doesn't even need to be drawn. Good points. Other thoughts? All right, so go to 1 Thessalonians 4 here and finish out this little section. You know, what he says in verse 3 is that God's will is your sanctification, abstaining, that's staying completely away from sexual immorality, possessing your body, verse 4, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who don't know God. You know non-Christians, they don't have any respect for the Lord, but we need to live in a holy way. But then he gives three great reasons in 6, 7, and 8. He says, Let no man transgress and defraud his brother, that is, by taking his wife and doing something that he shouldn't with her. Because the Lord, the avenger in all these things, I mean, God will judge people who are sexually immoral. You know, and the Bible speaks very, very firmly, very forcefully about how God feels about sexual immorality. And then in verse 7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. The whole call of God is that we live holy, pure lives. That's what he called us for. And then verse 8, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his holy spirit to you. The word order of the original emphasizes holy. He gives his holy spirit to you. What kind of people does he want us to be? He wants us to be holy people that correspond to his holy spirit. The whole point of this section is holiness. But holiness is expressed in purity and abstaining from sexual immorality. So that's his point in this whole section. And he's really emphasizing good reasons why you need to be pure and holy in this way. Comments and thoughts on any of this through verse 8 then. Thanks for listening to all of that. Um, he's got some more admonitions about some other subjects. Would somebody read 9 to 12? But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do, so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, 
that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. He's talking about what topic? Love. Brotherly love. How were they doing with that? Really good. Really well. What did he tell them to do? Keep it up. Grow more still. Excel still more. Because you can never have enough love. You always need to grow in that. So they were doing well, but he's pushing them to do better. Now I want you to see something that I think is kind of interesting. In 3.12, Paul prayed for them to increase and abound in love. In this verse, he tells them to excel still more. So he prayed, and then he exhorted. Then look at 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. He prayed that they grow in love, he told them to grow in love, and then by the second letter, he thanked God that they had grown in their love. So God is very involved in this, and they do grow in love, as Paul had told them to. Now, he's got a specific application here that I think is pretty important about growing in their love for each other, but it's something that at first you wouldn't see the connection. What's he telling them to do in verse 11? In a quiet life, to mind your own business. And what? To work with your own hands. So you take care of yourself, don't involve yourselves in other people's business, working with your hands. Now how does working hard fit in with the command to love one another? Because love is an action. Yeah, but how is like getting, doing good work at your job, how does that mean you love one another? You can look at verse 12. As opposed to being in need. And if you were in need, what would happen? They'd be giving to you. Now, this is an interesting concept. Part of loving others is that we work hard for our own food so we don't need somebody else to take care of us. Not abusing brethren's generosity. Because if we just think, well, there are brethren who will provide for me, so I'm going to just lay around and let them do it. In a way, I'm not loving them. I'm using their generosity. If I was loving them, I'd work hard so they didn't have to do that for me. Now, this is a delicate subject. Because the early Christians, by God's direction, helped each other out a lot. They gave to each other when they were in need. And God wants that to happen. And there are times when Christians are in need and we definitely need to give and be generous toward them. And when a Christian is in need, it's not a shameful thing to receive help. So we need that side of it. But it looks to me like that what had happened is that Christians had so well established here in Thessalonica the concept of giving to people in need that some of the brethren decided that was a pretty good deal for them. And even though they may have been able-bodied and been well able to work and support themselves, they weren't working and letting the Christians take care of them. 
Now, look at 2 Thessalonians 3. That's a big topic in 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in about verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He's telling them to work and not be undisciplined. Just like Paul had done, he worked hard when he was among them. But some of them, he says, aren't doing that. But look at verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. I think that's a clue. He says for the brethren who can to work and not to be dependent. But he turns to the other brethren and says, I don't mean by that for you guys not to keep being generous. Don't you get tired of doing good and helping people, but you guys who are just not working and abusing the system, you get busy and work. You need a balance in that. And that's what you've got. We ought not to be parasites. We ought not to impose ourselves on brethren's kindness unless we need it. Now, there are situations that people need help. And, and that's fine. But if it's just that I, I like, you know, I like people feeding me more than I like to have to work and feed myself, that's not being loving in that way. That's being selfish and seeking to receive, not seeking to give. Does that all make sense? Do you have some questions and comments about all that? Would verse 11 have anything to do with gossiping? Well, it might, because the idea of attending to your own business, the idea you'd be busy about working for yourself and not getting involved in everybody else's affairs. So it might be gossiping, it might be meddling, it might be, I don't know, just getting too wrapped up in trying to tell somebody else what to do. Yeah. If you're working hard enough for yourself and your family, you're not going to have time to bother that's exactly right. I think that's his idea. You know, get yourself productively occupied and you won't have all this time, you know, to mess around with other people, you know, being a hindrance to them. And wouldn't that include those who do need help? To be sure that, like, all right, if they can't support their whole family, do as much as they can. Yes. Like, all right, maybe I can't do as much as so-and-so can, so I need a little bit of help, but I don't need it to complete yeah, we ought to do what we can. Love for others means we provide it for ourselves when we can. When we can't, other brethren provide for us. I think that's the principle. Really, Ephesians 4 says, quit stealing but work so you'll have to give to the person who needs it. What we ought to be trying to do, if possible, is to work to give, not quit, quit work in order to receive. <laughs> not always is it possible. And certainly Paul would have really encouraged Christians to be generous to each other. But he's, he, there's, you know, every time you see something good, you see somebody taking advantage of it in the wrong way. And I think that's the situation here. Is, yeah, this is great. You know, they were being generous, but some people were using that the wrong way. If you think about it, if you don't work just because it's easier to let other brethren take care of you, they're not going to be able to use the money they're using for you for other people. If you could work for yourself and maybe even be a giver, then more people could be helped. That'd be a blessing. Anything else you want to say on this uh, passage? All right.
next topic, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he's teaching them about death and the resurrection and the return of Jesus, which is a theme in these books and something that was a big topic for early Christians. They thought a lot about Jesus coming back. So Paul says, I don't want you to misunderstand about these um, brethren who are asleep. What does he mean by them being asleep? They're dead. Why does he call them asleep then? That's it. They're going to rise again. They're going to wake up. In a Christian's understanding, death is really not more than sleep in the sense that they'll wake up. They'll be raised. Someone has said that cemeteries are really just dormitories for the dead. It's where they sleep until they're awakened and raised. Now, I think the sleeping here refers to their bodies, not to their spirit. It appears that the spirit maintains consciousness in a waiting place. There's a little room for debate about that, I think, but I think that's probably the best uh, uh, understanding of the biblical text. So he's talking about their body. They're asleep in the sense that their bodies are awaiting the resurrection. But he doesn't want them grieving like the people who have no hope because what does he say is going to happen? They're going to rise again. That's exactly right. They're going to be raised. Jesus, who died and rose, he's going to bring them with him, verse 14, when he goes back to God. He's, and he says, you know, this is going to be, happen this way. Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, the archangel's voice, God's trumpet, and who's going to rise first? The dead. And then the living will be changed. So the fact that they've already died is not going to mean that they're going to miss out on anything. They'll actually be raised before the living are transformed and raised. Kelly? Um, I always thought that like the dead in Christ always meant the Christians would rise first. But am I just completely making that up and everyone, whether they're Christian or not, are going to rise first? I'm sorry, that's always confused me. Great question. Here, he's only thinking about Christians. He speaks of the dead in Christ will rise before the living in Christ because he's just talking about those who will be blessed by the resurrection. <laughs> now, we know that the wicked will be raised, but man, their resurrection doesn't amount to the same thing. They're raised to face the judgment. Now look at John chapter 5. It's a really good question. There's a lot of debate about some of these kind of questions. I guess in one sense, you know, whatever happens is going to happen, but it's really helpful for us to know what the Bible teaches about these things. John 5, 28. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There's a time coming when everybody will come forth the same hour. And you might also look at Acts 24.15. In, in Acts 24.15, in Paul's speech before Felix, he says, Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I think Acts 24.15 and John 5.28.29 teach that the righteous and the wicked will be raised at the same time. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's really just looking at this from the standpoint of the resurrection of the righteous. So he's saying the, the righteous dead Christians will be raised before the living Christians. But the truth is, at the same time that the dead Christians are raised, the dead non-Christians are raised as well. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry about that. That's no problem. Good question. Maggie. Not to get like totally off on uh, Thessalonians, but I just have always had this question. Are there any like scriptures in the Bible that talk about, I mean, we know that there's like a great judgment day, but what happens like when we die? Is that our judgment day when we die or when Christ comes? Is that going to be the great judgment day? Is there anything that pertains to that? Yeah, there are some things that pertain to it. Um, one of our problems is just trying to know how to fit all the information the Bible gives us together. One story that seems relevant is the story Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, where it seems like when they died, I believe it's a parable, but the parables teach truth. When they died, Lazarus was in a paradise, and the rich man was already being tormented. Now, the problem that gives us is exactly what you're kind of, you know, talking about. If we, we usually say the day of judgment is like when Jesus raises us and we go before God. Mm -hmm. But it looks like that the rich man and Lazarus were already judged. And I think the best answer to that may be this. If you take a criminal case, a lot of times the criminal is in jail awaiting the trial or between the trial and the sentencing. And it seems, and he knows after the trial's over, he knows he's going to get punished. There's no question about that. But the sentence hasn't been pronounced yet. I take the judgment day as more or less the formal pronouncing of a sentence. Not like God's going to scratch his head and say, hmm, let's see what we're going to do with you. It's already fixed by what they've done during their life. And the people will already know, but it will be like a formal public announcement of the sentence. Yeah, That's because, the way I take it. Because it says that he's going like, to read our sins to us. Like, yeah, okay. perhaps. Uh, there seems to be some idea of exposing what we've done. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sir. Um, I've all, I don't know if this is right, but I've always been taught to go along with Maggie um, that when you die, you have like a good feeling or like a feeling of relief or something or if you're bad if you've done bad then you have like a bad feeling or something and then you go to Hades and await the judgment that's what I, I don't know if that's right that would more or less be the idea I think people would get out of that story of Luke 16 to the rich man and Lazarus that may not be a whole lot to go on I wouldn't just take my life on that, but that, that seems to be about as much information as we've got. You know, so 
we're kind of like just trying to figure out the answers to our questions based upon what little bits and pieces the Bible gives us. We may be misinterpreting some of that, but that's as much as I know to go on. So it seems that there's like a purgatory, maybe. Well, purgatory would probably not be the word to use because the Catholics teach in purgatory that. you can actually work your way out of it and right. get up to heaven. Right. Well, there's no idea of that, but yeah, some place of punishment or blessing okay. awaiting Jesus' return of the judgment. When you, okay. when you die, you, you know where you're going to go. That seems to be the case. That, that's my interpretation of Luke 16. Okay. Yeah. Good questions. I'll throw another one at you. Because it's amazing to me the number of Christians who don't understand this, and I bet some of you don't either. When Jesus comes back, and we have the resurrection, have you ever thought about what is it that's raised? Is it your soul? Is it your body? I was my soul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of seems like it's a body sometimes. It's your body. Jesus, that's why the soul goes to Hades because your body, because your body isn't Yeah, the only thing there is to raise is your body. Your soul is never planted. Now your body's changed. Your body's glorified. Your body's transformed. Wait, when you die, that's when your soul leaves you. There's nothing to raise with the soul. It was never buried. So it's the body that's raised, but it's changed as it's raised. A lot of Christians don't know that. I grew up not knowing that. Wait, how does it change? Like, you get wings. <laughs> well, look at Philippians 3. Good question. Like, your actual body that's in your coffin is going to come out and like to the ground in your coffin. That's it. It's a strong body, man. Yeah. Not, I mean, if you think about Christ's resurrection, like the yes. bodies from the graves came up. Yes, and Jesus' body itself. Yes. Resurrection. Every When Lazarus was raised, was his soul raised or his body raised? You know, the only thing resurrection applies to is the body. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And then the chapter that just deals with this at length is 1 Corinthians 15. You can spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. 1 Corinthians 15, 43. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, so also there's a spiritual body. So, it looks like as the body is raised, it's changed and glorified and made suitable to a heavenly existence, but it's still the body that's raised. There's nothing for the, to be raised about the soul. Yes, sir. Hey, Maggie just kind of told me this, but I'm going to ask you. Um. <laughs> yeah, you never know where you can go. Um, so, we were kind of whispering, and... Um, so when your body's erased and your soul is up there, you don't, your body doesn't really know what's going on? I assume soul. that the body and the soul are reunited. 
And then we go up before God in judgment, body and soul together. Well, yeah, because like when Jesus still was raised and the dead were like walking around, like they were still able to like. That's right. It wasn't just bodies without a spirit. So the spirit will be brought back into the body, and that's really the idea. We reverse the death. The death is when the soul leaves the body. The resurrection, the body's raised and the soul comes back into it. Since our bodies are going to be changed, I mean, we're not going to look like all That's right. It's not going to be like these bodies. Yeah. But it's still going to be bodies. But it's not going to be like these bodies. And we really don't know what the body's going to be like. 1 John chapter 3 says that. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We really don't know what it will be like, but we know we'll be like him. Because does it somewhere say like the fleshly body can't enter the kingdom? Yeah, First Corinthians 15 later on in that passage. Yeah. Anybody? I kind of forgot what I'm thinking That's okay. So... Just to get this straight. Okay. So, like, we die, and, like, our soul leaves us, but our body's in the ground. But yeah. then when Christ comes back, our soul is pretty much going to be reunited with our body. It's not going to be this body. And then, like, we're going to have judgment. Going, only more God and judgment. And only our souls go into heaven. No, I think body and Bodies? Do? Oh, okay, well, never mind. So but glorified bodies. Because then we're all destroyed in your body. That's so awesome. Yeah, it is. That is so awkward. I think about it. <laughs> we need to think about it more. That is really Because, like, that's a topic that, like, everybody has different opinions on. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I tell it's a bit of the the contract. Yeah. That's okay. Sorry. But I hate to inform you of this, but our time is really up. Oh, no. I mean, you can keep asking, but you'll have five minutes to get your other class, so you can go if you okay. want to. You can ask. So... You know how bodies that disintegrate so they work, right? Yeah. <laughs> Are you... <laughs> well, God, I mean, I God made this to begin with, and we're not to the so God can take care of that. Okay. Like, because I'm just thinking about, like, Adam and, like, the people back in the Old Testament. I mean, they don't really even have a body. They'd be quite decomposed by now, wouldn't they? Oh, okay. Oh, Good sorry. question. So, I love that you have a body, like, up there, or, like, the back. I don't know exactly where I'm pointing. I don't know. That's so cool. That's what it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. We're finally excited about that. That's cool. <laughs>